Genre. Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Holly Kennedy and Jerry Kennedy from the 2007 romantic drama, P.S. I Love You. Joining us for the discussion is returning guest, Rachel Armstrong. Welcome back, Hello. Rachel. Thank and you. also joining us is her husband, Matt Armstrong. Welcome, Matt. Hello. Very glad to have you both on, Rachel, you back, and Matt on for the first time. A um, little bit of an unexpected, I think, topic for Matt <laughs> for you to be joining us for your first time on the on the podcast. This is a listener request from Megan, who asked if we could cover this film around, um, the, the episodes can come out right around Valentine's Day. And I had actually never seen the film and only had the vaguest memory of it once i like saw was pulling it up to watch i'm like oh, okay I, now i got a little bit more but just from the title I'm like i kind of remember that coming out um and i've got to say i liked the film a lot more than i expected to like my expectations were just kind of like it's gonna be a movie i don't know <laughs> I, I don't remember like anyone super like hyper praising this film uh so i just expected to kind of like people said but i, I kind of got emotionally invested and uh really really enjoyed this film uh what about you rachel um, yeah, so I had seen it once before. Um, I don't remember when, but I didn't remember it hitting me super hard. And since I knew this was a listener request, I really wanted to make sure that I like did justice to mm -hmm. this person's love of this film. So I thought, let's have my husband on so you can talk about how you yeah, I also, came to the film. I had never seen it and um, I think I'd mixed it up with Valentine's Day. Is that the one where they like... <laughs> There's like a, a whole bunch of celebrities. So I kept expecting there to be like other storylines and main characters for a little bit. But um, no, yeah, similar. I, I, I enjoyed it. It was great. You did ask me about Valentine's Day and I was a little confused about what <laughs> there was that era when Hollywood would like just kind of get a whole bunch of A to B listers together. And a lot of them would actually never have a scene together in the film. They all just spend like yeah. two weeks right. filming their parts of the film. And then in editing, they, they create the whole story. There was that one, like the, what to expect when you're expecting film, you know, there's there uh, like a wave yeah. of those that was going on for a little while. Um, yeah, I think I was a little worried because of those films that Avengers, the first one, wouldn't be able to give enough screen time and justice to each of the superheroes. So I was really grateful that it actually did. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think we're you. We've seen a little more uh, work on the on the the team up films. Uh, well, okay, there's been hits and misses. I'm not gonna say that everything's a hit in For that, sure. but we've definitely seen some hits uh, with that with that style. Well. P.S. I Love You is a 2007 film that starred Hilary Swank as Holly Riley Kennedy, Gerard Butler as Jerry Kennedy, and it also had Lisa Kudrow, Kathy Bates, Gina Gershon, Harry Connick Jr., James Marsters, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, and Nellie McKay. It's actually, like, I was impressed by the cast. I kept seeing, like, people pop up and like, hey! Yeah. Right. <laughs> it was directed by Richard Lagravenez and had a screenplay by Lagravenez and Stephen Rogers. Not that one. Um, <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> he's one of those people that had that name that, like, comic book fans like hey steve rogers and the, but, but you know that's like a small percentage of the population and then captain america comes out and it's part of the mcu and it's like oh no this is going to be the rest of my life um rachel uh and matt you were kind enough to put together some trivia about the film would you like to share that yes and um matt so just to give you a visual matt and i are right next to each other talking into the microphone 
and we're just gonna alternate who says what and be very surprising so um so the film scored a 25 percent on rotten tomatoes like the critic score which is partly why i was very nervous to talk about it but it was super popular um and it grossed 156.8 million worldwide on a budget of like 30 million and um i recently listened to a 2020 interview that gerard butler gave about different movies in his career and this is kind of a longer quote but i thought it was so sweet so I wanted to read about what he said about um, P.S. I Love You. He said, there was a lot of love on that set, a lot of craziness, but in the sweetest way. There were a lot of weird, but big hearted people there, including me. As I went into the movie, every person that was involved higher up, they all thought, and rightly so, that the story was their story and telling their story. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why the movie was so successful, because it became everybody's story in accordance with what they had gone through in their lives. But I remember saying to Richard, the director, when I first met him, you know, I have this idea um, because as an actor, even if you're nice and you have a big heart, you still go into a movie and you're thinking about yourself, thinking, how am I going to do? How do I protect this role? And I said, I'm so going to do the opposite of that here. I want to go in and just think about Hillary and think, is she okay? What's the saying by self-forgetting that one finds? And the funny thing is it really worked. I had such a great time in that movie because I didn't think about me at um, all the time. I didn't, and I was really always kind of checking, are you good? Are you good? I just thought it was so sweet that, you know, he could have said many things about, um, you know, being that far removed and not really being invested. I feel like um, it could be a more honest portrayal of how he felt about it, and just lovely that he has such good, such good thoughts about it. Yeah, it just comes across as kind of like, ah, oh, sweet and pure. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. a nice and sentiment think- to come away from a creative project, because I'm sure there's, even when it's all good people working on it, there's stress in trying to engage in in the creative process with dozens of people that are involved and so i'm glad you know he, he came away with such good memories and i think you do f- kind of feel like uh when you're when you're seeing these people on screen and their chemistry like they feel like friends you know the, these do feel like people who know each other and care yeah yeah and he had just come off of 300 so i feel like that that even more i don't know feels i don't know what the set vibe was like on 300 <laughs> A lot of green screen. Yeah. Um, A lot of weird people with big hearts. Exactly. (laughs) The movie was filmed on location in New York City and County Wicklow, Ireland. Gerard Butler was skewered for his Irish accent. He is Scottish and he has admitted his Irish accent is not the best. But I actually did not notice it a ton in the film. Uh, I will say, like... I, I was pleasantly surprised with this film. I was kind of like, at the end, I was like, I don't really have any notes other than <laughs> Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Gerard Butler's Scottish Who accents. Jeffrey Dean Morgan? Oh, oh, yes. yes. Like, I, I think he forgot he was Irish in a couple <laughs> couple days. <laughs> yeah, I think Gerard Butler just, he has a very sort of subtle Scottish accent through most of it. Uh-huh. Like, mm. Occasionally he'll do like an Irish kind of thing, but yeah, it didn't... Uh... Um, a movie based on the sequel novel Postscript was announced in February 2020. So who knows if it will ever come out. But Hilary Swank um, expressed interest in reprising her role. So. Is that a um, sequel book by the same author, Cecilia yeah. mm-hmm. Ahern? Yeah. The classic movies Holly watches during the, the film are Dangerous, Jezebel, Now Voyager, and A Star is Born. Mostly all starring Betty Davis except for A Star is Born, which is Judy Garland. Yeah, we thought it was interesting how many classic movies she's watching. You know, like 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I recognize um, the Stars Born, and I th- I was like, kind of like Dangerous was like, oh, maybe I know that one. But the other two, I was like, I don't know what this is. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I have never seen any of them. So, um, And then uh, we were also interested in all the different song choices in the film. You know, Jerry sings a lot to Holly, and they have a couple karaoke moments. So he requests that Fairy Tale of New York, and this is a spoiler, um, be played at his funeral. And then he plays in kind of a flashback sort of vision she has, um, the song Love You Till the End. And he sends her a leprechaun singing telegram. And the leprechaun is supposed <laughs> to sing Yamo Be There, um, a 1983 song, and Holly tells him not to sing to her. And then uh, he also sings Mustang Sally and Holly sings Get Off by Prince and Love You Till the End as well, um, which is by the Pogues, which is an Anglo-Irish Celtic band formed in 1980s. I did not know many of the songs that were <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, selected for the soundtrack for this one. Before we move on, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening, and we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast. And we also are giving updates on our 2023 fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. On to the summary, which... Rachel, you were kind enough to write, but I will read here. Jerry trails after his wife, Holly, who is visibly upset, along the streets of New York and into their five-floor walk-up apartment. It's a lot of floors. She reveals he is uh, insinuated. She she reveals that he insinuated to her mother, Patricia, at dinner that Holly is the reason that they don't have kids yet. Holly wants to wait until she and Jerry have enough money to buy a bigger apartment. She has a plan but she also hates her job. Jerry and Holly fight. He almost leaves, and then they passionately make up. Jerry tells Holly to stop telling him he can uh, leave her because he isn't going to. He also thinks she's waiting for their life to start when they are already in the middle of their life. In the next scene, a little while later, Holly and her family and friends are holding a wake for Jerry at her mother's bar. Jerry has recently died of a brain tumor. Holly grieves alone in her apartment. She doesn't shower. She watches lots of classic movies. She wears Jerry's clothes, channeling her Mrs. Havisham. Her mother, sister, and friends attempt to connect with her, leaving her voicemails, but she rebuffs them. After a few weeks in the state, on her 30th birthday, Holly receives a visit from her friends and family. They appear with balloons and, a sign- and signs at her door. They are shocked at the state of her apartment. It is it is not good. The set decorators had fun uh, trashing an apartment, for sure. Uh, but and, and they soon just begin cleaning up as she goes to shower. Soon after they arrive, a delivery person drops off a cake that has a message from Holly's dead husband, as well as a tape recorder, with a message from Jerry, explaining that he has written her many letters, which will appear at random over the course of the next few months. When Holly finally goes back to work at a real estate agency, she gets involved in an argument between a husband and wife. The wife wants the apartment they're looking at and treats her husband poorly, who is worried about their finances. If they take the apartment, Holly tells the wife to treat her husband better, and she gets fired. Daniel, a man working at Patricia's bar, flirts overtly and bluntly with Holly. She's kind to him, but does not reciprocate. Patricia worries that the letters that from Jerry are keeping Holly from moving forward. She, uh, she, Patricia, never liked Jerry, uh, who married Holly when Holly was 19 years old. Patricia is still angry and hurt by her own ex-husband who walked out on their family when Holly was 14. Still, Holly looks forward to Jerry's letters and follows up on the challenges that he gives her, including that she has to go sing at a karaoke bar. Uh, As she sings, she sees Jerry, and she gets some mild clapping when she finishes from those that are really there. Her friend Denise meets and begins dating a man named Tom, who owns his own club. 
Jerry also gives Holly and her two best friends, Denise and Sharon, a trip to Ireland, having made the travel arrangements with a travel agent before his death. Jerry provides Holly's friends with letters filled with instructions for how to care for Holly. Denise and Sharon encourage Holly to flirt with a musician at a local bar, and he seems interested in her. But as the man sings, she's reminded of Jerry, who sang the same song, Galway Girl, to her at a bar in Ireland when she first met him. Holly leaves in the middle of the song, and her friends follow. The women go fishing and accidentally lose their oars. Stuck in the middle of a huge lake, Sharon announces that she's pregnant. Denise announces that she's getting married to Tom, who she met during their karaoke night. Holly is visibly upset. The musician, musician from the night before, whose name is William, arrives in a rescue boat. Back at the rental house, Denise and Sharon ply William with spaghetti and alcohol and convince him to stay the night. Holly, who feels overwhelmed by her friend's happiness, decides to pursue him, and they sleep together. While in bed, William makes the connection that Holly is his friend Jerry's widow, sharing with Holly that he was there the night Jerry sang Galway Girl to Holly. Holly's at first horrified, but William offers to tell her stories about Jerry from William's childhood, and she relaxes. Holly goes to visit Jerry's parents in another town in Ireland. They didn't attend the funeral uh, uh, because the dad had just had surgery. She thinks how they have never forgiven her for taking Jerry to the U.S. with her. Jerry's mother gives Holly a letter from Jerry, who seems to know that that she would visit his parents when she was in Ireland. We see a flashback as Holly reads the letter that Holly and Jerry met uh, during Holly's college trip to Ireland when she was 19 years old. They met on the road in a national park while she was lost. And as they walked together and she talked to him about art and creativity, he fell in love with her. He lets her borrow his jacket and connives to kiss her. She hurries off, insisting that if they're meant to be together, they'll see each other soon. Uh, and we realize that that scene took place before the singing at the bar in Ireland. Back home in New York and in the present, Holly feels inspired to pursue a new career. She ignores calls from her friends, even when Denise asks for wedding help. Holly eventually decides to design high fashion shoes, takes a class to put her designs into action. After designing and building her first pair of shoes, she meets up with Denise while Denise is uh, wedding dress shopping. Denise is upset that Holly is too late to be her maid of honor, but... When Holly admits that Denise is right, Holly couldn't handle Denise's happiness and Holly not being the center of attention, Denise and Holly quickly make up. Holly meets with Daniel for lunch to tell him about her shoe designs. She accidentally calls him Jerry. Dan Daniel, upset, leaves after telling her he wants to be someone's Jerry. He's angry that she only seems to do what the letters from her husband tell her to do. Holly begins crying as she watches the other couples in the restaurant and runs to find her mother back at the bar. They go for a walk and Patricia, Patricia reminisces about Holly's father and how much he used to make her laugh and feel special. Patricia hands Holly her last letter, revealing that Patricia was the person who had been delivering the letters despite not liking Jerry and her reservations about how the letters have affected Holly's ability to move on. Holly's mom leads her to read the last letter in which Jerry says he is honored that she was his wife and his whole life, but that he is a chapter in hers and she will have other chapters. While rereading the letter during Christmas time, she receives an apologetic voicemail from Daniel. Thinking this is a sign to start dating Daniel, Holly meets up with him at Yankee Stadium. She asks him to read the last letter aloud, and then he approaches her. They kiss, but soon break apart, both admitting that the kiss feels very weird. They decide not to date. As they hug, Holly begins to cry, and Daniel asks her what is wrong. She tells him that Jerry has been gone for a whole year, and she can't seem to feel his presence anymore. Holly participates in Denise's wedding. She writes a letter to Jerry telling him that she doesn't have plans. She makes big moves in her career as a shoe designer. Then she takes her mother to Ireland, hoping to help her mother laugh more and maybe understand Holly's beginnings with Jerry. When Holly and Patricia arrive, Patricia is stunned by the beauty. She also flirts with a farmer she meets, who happens to be William's father. William is at the farm. He asks Holly if he'll see her around, to which she smiles and says yes. The end. Thank you for writing that summary. Uh, this film, like I said, I was not expected for how invested I got. And I wonder if this is one of those stories that depending on when you watch it and what stage of life you're at, 
you're going to feel very differently <laughs> as, as you're consuming it. Uh, Cause I'm sure if I watched this before I was married, I would have been like, yeah, the movie's okay. But as someone who's like married, like it kind of forces you to like reckon with the idea of like you being gone and your spouse trying to move on. It's like, what, what does that actually look like? What, yeah. what would that be like? Uh, not a fun thing to be sitting there reckoning with <laughs> necessarily, but I think the movie does a really good job of kind of exploring some of those ideas. Yeah. I also think being a parent, it was really interesting because her relationship with her mom is an undercurrent of the whole movie, but it's not the main relationship, I would say. Um, and there's this really sweet and terrible moment toward the end when her mom is finally opening up to her about her dad, like about Holly's dad. And she says, you know, he, made, he used to make me laugh all the time. And Holly kind of says offhandedly, I don't ever remember you laughing. And um, her mom says, like, oh, that makes me really sad because I did. And I think that's a really interesting scene because, of course, she laughed. <laughs> you know, like, just, you know, like, Holly, even as this functioning adult, still doesn't quite see her mother as this full person, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very, I think it's very realistic. You know, you you have a whole life and your kids see you in a certain dimension of it and maybe that's the side that you show to them but that relationship really struck me being a mom now and thinking what are my kids thinking about the life i'm living Mm -hmm. you know what are their thoughts on and especially i I think the age that um holly's dad abandoned the family at you know as an adolescent for holly i think some things probably got crystallized in her vision of her of her mom Mm -hmm. you know in, in that particular moment as her mom was grieving and stressed and I'm sure angry and sad, you know, all at the same time. And that kind of became her perception that crystallized, which as you're saying, is not like the fully flesh rounded human being that her mom was. And I love that line too. I like, you know, it just, that scene sort of ends with her saying like, well, that makes me sad. And I feel like, you know, a less skilled writer would want to like tie that scene up, you know, with some sort of like, lesson or now now i feel this way or now i understand right but they sort of just left it in that complication um mm-hmm. i feel like that's what kind of the movie does really well across it kind of yeah. takes the moments where you think oh yeah this is sort of the answer and it kind of flips that and also i mean kathy bates is yeah. great at uh delivering that kind of line that just kind of sits in the space you know yeah <laughs> when, when she drops that line it's like there's no there's no follow up that's going to feel right. And Kathy Bates delivers a line that way that this, this is it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> there were a few things that I was like a little nervous about the film or like where I started to be like, oh, I don't know. Like there was a point where I kind of found myself siding a little bit with, uh, with Kathy Bates character at the bomb. Like I think Jerry's being maybe a little paternalistic and uh, like, like telling uh, Holly what, what she needs to be now and and but then we get to the, like the flashbacks of seeing them fall in love and his message is like i just want to remind you of who you were when i when we fell in love and i hope you can be that person I'm like oh okay that's a little different <laughs> than him like guiding her who to be it's like reminding her instead of who she yeah. is and it just landed very differently from that point forward like like there's a point where i'm like ah, you know i kind of see the concerns that are being raised and as a viewer i was a little little like alarm bells were ringing just a little bit, but then the movie absolutely dressed them in a way that I was completely yeah. satisfied with. Same thing with the, uh, the relationship with the Harry Connick Jr. Character. Um, Daniel, I think is his name, right? Yeah. Uh, where like, oh, I, I, 
Like I, I kind of understand why they want to show her trying to move on, but I don't want those two to get together actually. And then when they, when they don't, I'm like, okay, the movie addressed my concern. All right. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. like I start to get the, the, the little bit on edge and it's just like, let the story be told. And then, and then I, I get to decide if I liked it or not. But, and I was just on the concept of like making some judgments and then the story being told addressed all my concerns. Yeah. I think in a lesser rom-com, they would have gotten together and um, they do play that right. Like there's a lot of moments where you think, Oh, she's kind of warming up to him. And then that moment when they kiss and then immediately pull away, you're like, it's such a relief. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, they play it with the swelling music and the setting at like an empty New York uh, Yankee stadium that he just suddenly has access to. Don't worry. <laughs> we're just hand waving that. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's his cousin. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> or uncle or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, but he's working at a bar. Uh, <laughs> for, for probably pretty, pretty poor wages. <laughs> Even though he knows someone who is pretty high up in the Yankees organization. Um, but the, uh, you know, so it plays to all those romantic comedy tropes like this is the big moment uh and and, and then it's just like the music stops and they pull apart and and he's like oh i was like kissing my sister and, and she's like that was not right that was not right <laughs> and uh and so it subverts uh that and i think like as an audience there's like part of me that's trained enough to be like like getting the dopamine hit of the the romantic <laughs> the romantic conclusion of the story but there's also part of me is like oh, I don't want them to and then and then they don't and it's like oh, that's actually more satisfying well done well done to the writers yeah and you know she does she it's clear that she you know is going to have some involvement with William the Irish guy but even then the movie doesn't end with them getting together it ends with the possibility of them getting together, which I think is a much more honest approach to it because, well, on the one hand, I don't know why she's being so attractive to these Irish musicians. <laughs> on the other hand, um, uh, you know, it makes it like, she's still grieving and this process will be a slow process. So. Yeah. And I liked that. Um, it wasn't a linear improvement for her in yes. processing her grief. Oh, I loved that. Yeah. We yeah. definitely see these fits and starts and um, reversions to some some bad coping mechanisms, but they're coping mechanisms, right? Like she is in trauma and uh, some of the, the shutting down, not answering her friend's phone calls, uh, seemingly erratic in her behavior, the not taking care of herself or her apartment very much. Like that's all can be part of the process of grief. Uh, I mean, people grieve differently, but everything that they showed felt like a reasonable real reaction to grief that someone somewhere has had yeah yeah and i love that as well how you know you have the like amazing going to ireland healing moment and then she has this like you know creative montage of like i figured it all out right and it's still like after that that she has sort of the real breakdown when she finally like goes to her mom Mm -hmm. right like sort of traditionally the you know long travel creative montage is like everything's resolved now And even in her creative montage, she is not valuing the friendships around her. Um, There's this really great book called Designing Your Life by these two Stanford professors. And one of the things they say um, is that you can't design your life in isolation. And I feel like that part of the movie, she's she's like, oh, I got this. Like, I'm going to design shoes. I feel Mm -hmm. so motivated. But there's still more growth to be had because she's doing it in isolation and she's not doing it with her community you know oh that did remind me there's one other thing where i was just like uh, getting ready to be like frustrated with the film and say like why why did you choose to do that when she decides 
that she wants to make shoes and like she takes a couple pairs of her shoes and like starts <laughs> taking pieces i'm like no you can't that's not how this works but then it's like it shows her going to shoe classes like shoe, shoe design courses and like taking classes and how to actually do this and fits and starts of like she's not like an overnight sensation which again a lesser film right. would have said like yes. oh they found a creative outlet and suddenly it's a success because that happens to all of us <laughs> you know that you're, you're you're somewhat good at one thing and suddenly you're 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 at the top of that that game uh but like showing her actually going and taking the classes I'm like okay the, the film has surprised me again in making the correct choice <laughs> um can i read so you mentioned grief a little earlier and of course that's such a big part of the movie um there's this really great poem by mary oliver called heavy um about grief can i just read a tiny bit please of that? do okay so she starts off that time i thought i could not go any closer to grief without dying i went closer and i did not die surely god had his hand in this as well as friends Still, I was bent, and my laughter, as the poet said, was nowhere to be found. Then said my friend Daniel, brave even among lions, it's not the weight you carry, but how you carry it. Books, bricks, grief, it's all in the way you embrace it, balance it, carry it, when you cannot and would not put it down. So I went practicing. And then it goes on to talk about that. But I love that. Um, I mean, it's such a beautiful description of grief, and I think the movie shows grief in a real way as well you know she's practicing holding the grief um because she doesn't want to carry it but also she doesn't want to put it down mm -hmm. so, yeah. why do you think um like what is the value of watching a film that's about something like grief uh because I, I i mean this isn't the only example uh, there's lots of books and and other stories that open on something tragic but wow i guess my question is just like, why? Why is that something we're drawn to telling those stories and consuming those stories? Well, I wonder if it's kind of like you were saying, like, you know, <clears throat> depending on where you are in life, right? Like the in that experience watching the movie, you're able to think through a variety of situations and scenarios that you would not otherwise think through in that amount of depth. Mm -hmm. right and there's some sort of being able to like i don't know the fact that the movie resolves eventually in whatever way it does right like sort of you know i can think about grief and what i would do and then there's this at the end there's this resolution like oh yeah whatever happens right like it would work out and i would move on mm -hmm. I don't know, there's... Yeah. yeah and it wouldn't just be like world is fixed but I, I can't take that next step is it's kind of the resolution. Like she's not right. suddenly in a, in another happy relationship and uh, you know, every, everything feels right. It's, you know, I'm, I'm at peace with the, the grief that's going to be a part of me uh, and, and still taking another step forward. Yeah. And you know, you're forced into grief. No one chooses grief. I think, but um, it, it reminds me of, but we try to avoid it. And uh, I was thinking of this comparison. We just finished listening to Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone with our um, daughter. And, um, you know, they talk about how they don't want to say Voldemort's name. They say, yeah, you know, you know who instead. And um, Dumbledore is very adamant, like, don't give him that power say it. And I feel like the same thing with grief and death. It's like the more we try to avoid this very important and natural part of life, the more power it has over us. So we get this chance to explore it in kind of a safe way and process it. 
yeah, the uh, the Neil Gaiman emotional inoculation of storytelling for children. That mm. you, you can safely experience strong emotions before you actually experience them. And it gives you a framework for processing them, even though what you, you know, when you actually go through grief, obviously it's going to be monumentally more significant than yeah. watching a movie like PS I Love You. But even having that uh, narrative framework of good days and bad days and and the some of the processing that we see Hillary Sink's character go through and the, uh, the way the support systems can exist. Uh, like all of that is going to be useful, even if it doesn't feel like it when you're actually in the throes of grief, it, it is still like a, a little bit of scaffolding to help you kind of understand uh, the process that you're about to go through. Yeah. And um, like you said, she has this community around her. I think it's really interesting because the movie is about her being left behind by her husband, mm-hmm. but and so in a way she's so lonely but the whole movie is full of her friends and family who are imperfectly but very um enthusiastically trying to help her um you know there's just so much of the movie is her listening to voicemails in her apartment of them trying to reach out to her and then getting angry that she's not you know responding and then as soon as she admits to her friend Denise at her wedding dress fitting that the reason why she hasn't been contacting her is because she didn't like not being the center of attention and she didn't like Denise being happy. Denise was so angry. And then immediately she's like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And they have this. <laughs> I feel like that's a really big superpower of this movie is that often in rom-coms, the side characters or the best friend trope is very, a very flat character. And in this case, I felt like I could watch a whole movie about Denise. I could watch a whole movie about whatever her other friends made. <laughs> you know they were very i felt like they did a really great job of making them also feel like they were also having their own stories yeah denise was about to marry the mayhem guy from all i know (laughs) and also the guy from uh 30 rock yeah Uh what's his the yeah gross boyfriend (laughs) um yeah i i think that's i mean in some ways this this film is uh, another example like the hero's journey where the the holly character at the beginning is in her known world and is forced to enter the unknown mm. world of, of grief uh, and has days where she is down in that abyss, but she has this fellowship of friends who are going to help her carry on. And in the end, she leaves that abyss and enters out, you know, it passes back to her known world as a master of both worlds. And it's not an abandonment of the grief. The grief is absolutely going to be a part of who she is from here on forward, but she's mastered it in a way because of, the process that we've seen throughout this film yeah um i also think um oh sorry <laughs> i had a thought and then i ever oh um nope lost it. <laughs> what was it um i just mentioned the hero's journey we can backtrack through journey uh no matt yeah you go well, yeah, and I think it's interesting, right? Like that part of the hero's journey is that Jerry becomes sort of the mentor figure, mm-hmm. right? That's like, oh yeah. And part of the hero's journey is the hero having to go on without the mentor. Like that's right. a wow. stage. I also think it's interesting. This is the thought I had. What, um, you know, she at the, you know, it be the movie begins with them having an argument, and it's a big argument. You know, it's about her feeling being worried he will leave, like her dad did, and feeling like. They're being left behind by their friends who have more money and are ready to have kids and things. Um, So it's not perfect. And at one point she asks Daniel, why did God kill my husband? And he says, maybe you were too happy. 
And she's like, no, I was not too happy. <laughs> and it isn't until later on in the movie, I think, that these experiences with Jerry's letters, she realizes she really, you know, <laughs> in a cliched way, she had a lot. And it wasn't until losing it that she realized, like, she was, there was a lot of happiness there available for her. You know, mm-hmm. And still is. But. Yeah, and I think that argument at the beginning is really important for a few things. It actually establishes the depth of the love of their relationship that they can have that kind of an argument in which real raw emotions are being expressed but you also never feel like a line is being crossed (laughs) in this or that they don't love each other like and that that's says something about the foundation that the relationship has that they can open the film on their argument and the audience is still invested in that relationship because of the performance of gerard butler and hillary swank that you you get an absolute sense that this is a loving couple that is going to be fine, that this argument is not the end of anything. Um, that is just part of being a couple <laughs> is having these kinds of arguments about interactions uh, that you, people are viewing differently. Um, you know, that's just the kind of thing that happens. Um, and also I think it does a really good job of establishing Hillary Swain's character as someone who needs control Um we find out more about why about the lack of control that she's felt in her life. Uh, And that's why this grief I think is hitting her so hard. Uh, I mean, anyone would obviously be grieved to lose uh, a spouse, but where so much of her life is geared around planning and control and a checklist of steps of what's going to be next to have that all pulled away um, is not just she's shaken to have lost the love of her life, but like her framework for, her worldview and how, how life is going to progress is now gone. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think also, you know, the letters are set up as being sporadic and she doesn't have control over them. So she's got a, both with the grief and with the letters she's got it getting. And as you said, her mom kind of has a point, you know, some, in some ways the letters are keeping her from moving forward. I mean, ultimately I think they're definitely net positive, Mm -hmm. but it's clear that Jerry is not like some godlike. you know, he's not, there are complications to the plan he had that yep. he was, you know, excited to execute for her. And I, not that that meant he shouldn't have done it, but um, that the concerns Patricia was bringing up were real. Yeah. Um, and I think one of my favorite parts of the film actually came closer to the end. And I've already said where it like kind of relieved me of some of the pressure I was starting to feel building about like, what am I going to, you know, what's my take going to be about this when we start to see those flashbacks in Ireland, but the way they structured and ordered those flashbacks was kind of delightful <laughs> um, that we're, we're finding out, we find out like some reveals through the order of the flashbacks that were given where uh, we see her at the bar and Jerry singing and like, making flirtatious eyes at her and asking her about the you know, the jacket. And she's like, oh, I wanted a bet. And that all feels like that could have been first interaction. Right. And, and as far as we, as viewers know at that point it is, but then we get one more flashback. That's a little earlier of them meeting on the road and she gets the jacket from him after a little coy bet <laughs> before them. And then we realize that, uh, and well, and that conversation ended with her saying like, if I see you, like if I'm able to go to the bar where you're playing, that that's fate that we should, we should see each other again. Uh, instead of you know us us planning, we just kind of need to leave it to fate. And so like we're reordering what we just saw, um, and that like reveal the earlier conversation that makes you rethink and reassess what you know a couple scenes earlier. I thought was really yeah. well done in the film. Yeah, because I think you know that's part of the point of a flashback is to change your interpretation of a scene. But in this case, 
there's, you know, an- another layer to it. You know, like what you were saying, we thought that first flashback was the first time they met, but then it has all this added nuance. Yeah, and it was just kind of a, a love at first sight, kind of the singer making flirty eyes at the, the cute girl, uh, you know, in the crowd, which I'm sure happens. But then we find out that this is like a reconnection that means something more and is deeper to them. And also you can see William on the stage in his glasses and hat, um, you know, because he says like he remembers the guy that she meets in Ireland mm-hmm. after her husband has died. Um, he remembers her from Jerry singing to her. And so if you look in that scene in that flashback, he's <laughs> inside, but wearing giant sunglasses and a hat. <laughs> okay. Like, I wanted to go back and check and I never, I never did. I, I like after he said that, I'm like, was he in that scene? I mean, surely they would have had him there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to see that. Um, one thing. So this film, it, it like, I feel like the marketing of it, and I'm sure I, I'd have to go double check, but like my memory of the film is that this was some sort of romantic comedy, which it's not a romantic comedy. There are laugh out loud moments, but it's, you know, <laughs> this is a film about grief. But my memory is that was kind of the Hillary Swank Gerard Butler romantic comedy is, is what, what like that's how I would have described it before actually sitting down and watching it. Yeah. Um, and yet it does have some of the tropes and beats of romantic comedies. Uh, and one thing that you've already kind of identified is like these side characters that are around that it does feel a piece with something like while you were sleeping or, uh, you know, runaway bride, you know, <laughs> this, uh, strange menagerie of humans that surround our protagonists. Uh, <laughs> did you have any favorite side characters in this film? Oh, I mean, so many good ones. <laughs> um, I definitely, I mean, I think her mom, you know, she comes across initially as like the stick in the mud, mm-hmm. the, the person who doesn't understand true love. Um, and then, you also see that we've been viewing her as a very flat character and she's not, but I also think the two best friends are so great. Like, <laughs> um, so the person who plays Denise is uh, Lisa Kudrow. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> she just, um, which this would have been what, like five years after friends ended, maybe somewhere in that range. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, there's that moment when <laughs> they're sitting on the boat and she's lost her nail polish and they've lost both their oars and um, her life jacket accidentally inflates. And the other friend is, says, you should go swim to shore because your life jacket is inflated. And so she, <laughs> Denise reaches over and inflates her life jacket. And <laughs> I, I'm guessing that they didn't know how funny it would be when it happened because it kind of goes around you know it doesn't inflate all at once and it's kind of hidden behind some collar so it just ends up taking a little bit longer and then um uh holly makes a comment and lisa could kudrow reaches over and also inflates her life jacket and then the scene ends not with them all laughing about it but just the three of them sitting on one tiny bench in this boat in the middle of this beautiful lake each of them with their giant life jacket <laughs> Which I will, I will admit, part of me was like, you're being a little helpless here. Yeah. Someone could have swum out to that oar, for sure. Yeah. Like, yeah it wasn't that the, far away. The oars were not that far away. Yeah. I don't know how cold this water is. I've never been to Ireland. I don't know what an Irish like, oh, feels like. Oh, that's true. But sitting there and hoping is not maybe the best plan. <laughs> uh, Matt, do you have any fi- favorite side characters? I think similar. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think 
Daniel's character is really interesting. Like mm-hmm. the fact that, uh, like I was watching an interview, he he was saying kind of uh, Asperger's is what he was sort of channeling. Um, and, but his, I think it's interesting that like his sort of no filter, I'm going to sort of tell you exactly what I'm thinking, right? Offers such an interesting uh, dynamic to sort of Holly's growth, right? It's like having these moments where he's just going to like, say exactly how he thinks it. I don't know. Yeah, the character very early on says, like, I, I have no filter. Um, and is Harry Connick Jr.'s portrayal is definitely supposed to be someone who's socially awkward and uh, on the spectrum, uh, you know, is, is as you said, he's channeling um, that that kind of personality trait into, into his performance. Um, and yet, I don't know if it's because it's Harry Connick Jr. or what, but there's still a little charm around him where yeah. you're... Yeah. Uh, like, yes, he's trying to play someone who's a little bit off from the mainstream, but you understand why the Holly would be drawn enough to him to consider, like, maybe maybe this is my next romantic relationship. Right. And he's just so clearly into her and willing to say it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I do just uh, he, he doesn't get a ton of screen time, but anytime James Marsh is on screen, I think it's maybe my love of Spike from... <laughs> from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. It's like, oh, there's James Marsters. That's <laughs> always, always a pleasure to see him. Um, even if it is a completely different character uh, <laughs> than the one I most associate that man with. Yeah. And we didn't see, he didn't have a lot of, a ton of moments, but yeah, it was. Like the dude, a, a nice I think they give you just enough of this cast, which again, it's a, it's a, it's a fair sized ensemble for right. this kind of a film that every one of those characters has a moment where you're like, get a little smile, <laughs> you know, from, yeah. from them. Uh, um, that reminds me of the, the wake, you know, at the bar where they're um, the reverend or priest um, plays the song Jerry has requested. And um, it turns into kind of a rock song and has some cursing and the priest just starts singing along and Patricia, um, Holly's mom is looking very like <laughs> annoyed by his willingness to join in on this. I think that the priest does a great job. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a good cast for um, the actors knowing what they're being asked to do. Like none of you are here yeah. to like take over the film. Uh, this is Hillary Swank's film. <laughs> you know from from beginning to end um even gerard butler uh through voiceover uh and and flashback scenes like yeah you're going to be co-listed as as you know a list as a co-lead but this is holly kennedy's story um and each one of those actors i think uh did a good job of of nailing what they were being called upon to do by the script by the director you know by the scenes that they were in yeah for sure Let's see here. I'm just going to skim through your discussion points. I want to make sure because you were kind of to make so many. I want to make sure we've hit these. <laughs> well, I do want to hear a little bit. Matt did some research into the movies that um, Holly was watching and a little bit of their plots. So I would love to. Or, yeah. And it's right. Like they're all, they're all have similar themes. Right. And I don't know how much the screenwriter is, you know, right. Like, trying to connect it right but all all of the ones are um you know let's see what like what are the ones like jezebel she's watching jezebel when she says like why can't i be betty davis um and it plays 
uh, let's see, the, the plot is like a woman who's engaged and then um, they have this like falling out and it's been a year. So her, um, the person she's with leaves and then he comes back after a year and um, she's like hoping they'll get back together and it turns out he's married. Um, and then it, the plot goes like, then he ends up getting like, anyway, I won't, I'll, I'll <laughs> leave that to the listeners to go and explore. It's a really interesting plot, but just sort of that fact, right? There's all of this, all of these elements about, um, you know, stars that are uh, trying to come back. And um, anyway, all the, th- all the themes of the movie just, just come out um, kind of throughout the, the thing I'm trying to. Yeah, I mean, it's just good intertextuality and referencing of, you know, the, the, the thematic overlap. There's a reason these are the films that were were chosen there. Yeah, yeah. Um, can I mention a, well, do you have more? Um, one of my other favorite moments besides the boat scene is, um, <laughs> so um, Jerry, in a flashback, Jerry challenges Holly to sing at a karaoke night, and she's clearly very upset with him. Um, but she gets up on stage and she starts doing out of his striptease, which is like a, a little uncomfortable. But <clears throat> she starts singing this song and um, then she trips on the chords and <laughs> falls on the stage. And the next scene is of them in the hospital together and her whole face is taped up and she's just got blood all over <laughs> Like, like just the dried blood of a bloody nose <laughs> and, and she's like i didn't want to go to karaoke and he's like you look great <laughs> i love that contrast between hillary swank being really sexy and then like the next scene she's just covered in blood <laughs> yeah he said like for the performance of public relations, like hillary is like what are you doing here but it's really about making this heightened contrast of yeah <laughs> of yes, going yes, from the stage exactly. and uh like being the center of attention and and then like and it is a great slow pan uh to reveal her head wrapped up <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like we don't know how injured she is we just see jerry <laughs> at a bedside <laughs> uh yeah like the camera does the reveal of uh there's probably a concussion and a broken nose (laughs) and and her ankle was hurt in this process uh and i think a lot of our focus on this discussion has been inevitably about grief but it is worth admit you know recognizing i also laughed out loud watching this film there were a lot of very funny moments yeah um it's it's a really interesting like my as i'm like thinking back through my emotional reaction to the film it really is kind of all over the place but in the right way where like yes i'm being manipulated by this film it's it's trying to make me feel these things that's what all stories do so that is not a critique of the film and yet like it is a very mixed group of emotions where like i I got teary-eyed at some points and i was laughing aloud at other points and i just given like a like it just felt pleasant and nice to be hanging out with these people at some of these points yes yeah. uh, so so it does give you a pretty wide range across the two hours of the film's runtime yeah which i think is such a strength i mean it seems so difficult to capture those um various human moments in you know the right ratio for it to still be pleasant um and then do it in two hours that is kind of crazy so yeah, and I, I think because of the nature of this particular story, it couldn't be like a. You, you don't want to just go from like the depths of sadness to happiness in a steady climb. Yeah. Uh, that herky jerky feel, and as I try and like go back and through and track my emotions, that's 
the right choice to make for telling this particular story that it is in one scene you're gonna find yourself laughing out loud and kind of forgetting the overwhelming sadness and in the next scene she's back in her bed and struggling to get herself up in the morning and to you know have any motivation to to even really move or communicate with anyone mm. i will also say uh, amongst all the references we you, you guys gave shout outs to the the songs and uh the movies there was just a brilliant Mrs. Havisham reference from Kathy Bates that just came out of nowhere <laughs> for me. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was actually mentioned twice in Mrs. Havisham. I think earlier in the movie, Holly said, can I just, you know, Mrs. be that Mrs. Havisham and her friend's like, well, you have to be rich to be crazy. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, her mom brings that up again. Yeah. All right. Do you have any final thoughts about P.S. I love you? I think I just really like the right the moment when sort of the revealing moment when they do the flashback and Holly's like her super passionate creative self. Um, there's a line where she says, um, just create something new. There it is. And it's you out in the world outside of you. And you can look at it or hear it or read it or feel it. And you know a little bit more about you, a little bit more than anybody else does. And I feel like that's an interesting like thing to kind of juxtapose throughout the film of, of like you know this sort of knowing about herself um right and and that's sort of the the core feelings that he was trying to kind of get her back to is that mm-hmm. um putting something outside of herself so that she can you know know more about herself other people can know more about her um and just kind of like creatively inspiring, right? Of like, you know, you make something and then you know more about yourself, which I think is really cool. Yeah, I do like that a lot. Rachel, you, uh, like, right before we started recording, we were exchanging a couple of emails, just setting things up. And you said, I think this might be a perfect movie. <laughs> do you want to expand <laughs> on that just a little bit? Well, I was thinking about, I think, uh, at a podcast episode that you talked about Paddington 2 as a perfect movie. Not that it's like the perfect movie, but for what it was trying to accomplish, it did it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I um, usually I'm reticent to to like movies that critics have said are bad <laughs> because I have a little elitistness yeah. to me. But, um, but watching it, I was like, wait a second. I'm feeling so happy now. I'm feeling so sad. I feel like, like just laughing so hard and get to the end and really felt inspired. And thought, I actually think this movie did exactly what it set out to accomplish here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, perfect in that way. Yeah. And, uh, I agree mostly. I just again just minor nitpick of the Irish accents. And I will say there's one other scene that did stick out as just like absurd of like it, this feels like you're you're just moving a piece around to get the piece around. And it's when uh the um uh what is the character's name? It's the Jeffrey Dean Morgan character. Uh oh, mm-hmm. what what is his character's name? But it, he he's he's finding himself spending the night in this house with his three wood and he goes to take a shower and he walks out naked and forgets he's naked. (laughs) I'm like, I, this isn't your space (laughs) that you're in. (laughs) It's like, Oh, Oh, I didn't realize. That's that's a good point. There's a little too much scandalousness for, well, well, just, uh, it's not so much like the scandal. It's just like, that doesn't feel human. That that's a moment where you forget that you're walking around butt naked. (laughs) 
when you're in a stranger's house without a door yeah yeah like oh excuse me i didn't realize he kind of like coughs in a way that's like hey look over here oh interesting you think he's like i know my butt looks good (laughs) no i i just think it it was like the screen i knew they wanted to have those two have an intimate conversation uh and and, and it's one of those where I'm like, it's just the beat leading into it just didn't quite land for me. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Which, I mean, yeah, this whole film sure. is about grief. And there's a whole, I still remember vividly, a class in, I was taking a creative writing class in college where the teacher talked about dead dogs, that there are stories that need grief as a motivation for your characters. And there are times where it's a dead dog where it's just like, you're just manipulating the audience. This isn't earned. <laughs> this is just, mm, you know, your yeah. character came across like their pet dog died. <laughs> it's like, and for him, that's like unearned grief is his example is, is just like the pet dog died. Uh, and, um, and he said, like, if you're writing about grief, try to avoid the dead dogs. And I think this is a good example of a film that is like your inciting incident is just raw grief. And yet it, it doesn't feel like a dead dog at all. Like this feels completely earned the whole way through the whole journey is it, like so much of it is like careful maneuvering of, uh, you know, getting the characters in the, in the right places to make the audience feel exactly what they're supposed to feel. And that was just one little bit that I caught on. I'm like, that doesn't feel like motivated by humanity <laughs> in that bit. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good call. Good call. Uh, but on the whole, I was impressed with this film. It, I liked it so much more than like, like my expectations. I just, it wasn't like good or bad. It was just like, Oh, you know, listen, I recommended this. Let's, let's do this one. I have so little memory of when this film came out that I didn't have really any preconceived notions going in. And about like 20 minutes in, I'm like, I'm kind of really, really liking this film. <laughs> then, yeah. By the end, I'm like, I, I'm so glad that, that Megan asked us to do that. And she's asked for a couple other stories. And I've, I've always, enjoyed the topics that we've covered. So I guess I'm saying, Megan, keep the request coming. Cause I think you're batting a thousand on the requests where it's like, Oh, I didn't know that one. I was, I was never going to get into the rotation by itself. And I'm really, really glad that we covered this. Yeah. I also, I, I feel like the movie is so full of love, you know, but she, I mean, she mentions that at the end too. Like there's the romantic love of her and her husband. There's the kind of blooming romantic love of, her and William, there's her relationship with Daniel, which ends up being kind of a sibling love. And then there's the love from her mom and her sister, and then the love from her friends. And it's nuanced, you know, it's not always um, conveyed in the right way, but there's there's just always this feeling of like a lot of love in her life. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Like as much as the film is about grief, it's also about love. Um, and that's, yeah. I, I think, you know, that's the classic, that's what makes the grief so poignant is how, how yes. deep the love was, but it's also what is going to help her to pull out of the grief spiral that she's in is this love and support that, as you said, it's, it's not always maybe the, it's always earnest support, even if it's not necessarily like the right yeah. thing that she needs at that exact moment. It's always coming from a place of earnest care, uh, uh, for, for, for the Hillary Swank character. So um yeah I, I think there's so much about this movie that that is definitely praiseworthy uh in it um there was a great article that um the, the title was like why ps i love you is actually a great film or something um and and it touches on that it says like you know the critics didn't like it um but for some reason it's like it's like harder to you know accept that a movie is well done that's about like love and and grief like than it is you know some sort of edgy gangster like really violent thing mm-hmm. it's like oh that's like you know uh that's real that's real yeah <laughs> uh, 
no, I, th- I think that is a good point that uh, there's nothing that is like hyperbolic or larger than life in this. It is just a story of a woman who lost her husband and is having a hard time. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Other than her financial situation, which continues to confuse me. Oh, there's that. Yeah. Where like, yeah. It, okay. It's not like a fancy apartment in New York, but New York is not a cheap place to live and she gets fired and I don't know. Does she ever get another job? I'm trying to think through. <laughs> I mean, she becomes a very famous fashion designer. So. Yeah, well, like she, but she's also taking classes that are going to cost her money to go learn how to become the shoe designer. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, mean, the, yeah. There, it's there's maybe a little catch there. Business, you know, that was actually doing quite well. I don't know. He's, he had some CDs that took off after. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well thank you Rachel for coming back on Matt this is your first time on the protagonist podcast and we always ask first time guests our dinner party question where if you could have a dinner party with a handful of fictional characters who would you want to hang out with for one evening yeah I uh, I, I struggled this one as Rachel I mentioned earlier I, I you know I've been reading a lot more nonfiction since grad school and so I've, I haven't done as much fiction. And then, so I was thinking through, and then I thought like, what would, what would my, my 13 year old self? Cause that was, I, I think, you know, when I was really into fiction, what <laughs> the, would the my, deep I, fandoms I, were forming I, at that age? Yeah. <laughs> what, what would my, so, so I decided to go back to my 13 year old self and in that uh, realm, I think what would be the coolest uh, is just, um, so I have, uh, Aragorn naturally, mm-hmm. um, this will tell you about my 13 year old self, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi, right. Zorro. <laughs> Is this Antonio Bandera uh, Zorro? Or? Yes. Oh. Yes. Um, and, uh, Lupin. Mm, um, yeah. wait, from Harry Potter, from Harry not, Potter, not, not Lupin, Lupin the, yeah, the French Lupin. art thief. Oh, but man, that would also, right. <laughs> Let's throw him on there. Um, or the Lupin, the, the, the Netflix character inspired by the right, French art. Yeah. Thief. That's yeah. The, um, uh, and then Marion Pippin, I, I think they could just be sort of one if they count as one. Yeah. Uh, just to that. sort of offset the seriousness of these sort of epic adults. Oh yeah. There's, there's some brooding figures <laughs> that, that you had present. There's gonna be a yeah. lot of people sitting in the corners at this party. <laughs> Shadows. Yeah. So Everyone's far away from the door. <laughs> that's why Marion Pippin there just to ease the tension. Um, but I think my 13 year old self would just, would just sort of sit in awe and, you know, it'd be like, uh, try to have some sort of forced story time, you know, maybe they, they do some like sword lessons or something that's, mm. uh, you know, that, that's sort of what came to mind. Oh yeah. I mean, you've also, yeah, you've got a lot of weapon expertise in this room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, not like heavy ordnance or anything, but still. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you uh, for for coming on again. Uh, Always a pleasure to have you on. That is going to wrap up this episode. Listeners, thank you for downloading. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast and your podcast app of choice. Please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long.
Okay. Okay, so I'll just jump into the next trivia point. The movie was filmed. But Joe, act surprised. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the movie was filmed. What? On... 